0: DTC Pod, where we take you behind the wheel with the best founders and operators of consumer brands. You'll learn the ins and outs of business from setting up shop, hitting your first million, scaling past eight figures, and even navigating an exit. As founders ourselves, our goal is to help you learn from the best as you build. Visit us at DTCpod.com to sign up for our weekly newsletter, join our founder community, and find additional resources from every episode. DTC Pod is brought to you by Trend, the creative solution for your brand. Go to Trend.io to access thousands of creators for content needs such as product photography, unboxing videos, or even TikTok and IG Organic Creative. Use the code DTCpod10 for 10% off your next content purchase. Are you curious how much your business is worth? Get your free, no obligation offer from OpenStore at open.store. The subscription market is predicted to grow nearly $500 billion by 2025. Recharge is the leading subscription management solution, helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale their subscription offerings. Over 15,000 merchants use subscriptions powered by Recharge to grow their business and their communities by increasing average order value, reducing churn, and providing predictable recurring revenue. Turn transactions into long-term customer relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Check them out at rechargepayments.com forward slash DTC pod. What's up, DTC Pod? Today we're joined by Clayton Chambers, who is the owner of the Sprezza newsletter and has been involved in the DTC world for a while now. So, Clayton, why don't you kick us off and tell us a little bit more about your background in the space and how you got started with your newsletter, Sprezza?
1: Yeah, great to be on the uh, great to be on the pod, as as the kids say. Uh, my background is uh, really kind of at the intersection of like clothing and well, clothing and apparel, uh, but also e-commerce. And so uh, I went to school in New York City back in the day and uh, really cut my teeth in clothing and fashion world. Um, had the opportunity to work at places like Barney's New York and Michael Kors. And um, my sort of foundation of like understanding clothing was built really kind of on the luxury side of like luxury goods and luxury products. And so um, understanding that from like a creative standpoint at Michael Kors and then also having you know the opportunity to work at Barney's on the buying and merchandising side was like where I, where I sort of got started. Um, being in the city also is like a great place to create content, and I think like that sort of late wave of like Tumblr, WordPress 2.0, um, like having a blog was the thing to, to do. Right, that's how blogs like Heist Nabiety and Hypebeast got started and um, have turned into what they are today. And so um, I started my own menswear blog with my brothers. Um, it used to be called Brothers and Craft. And uh, the idea was just really kind of focus on like organic content, stuff that we liked, you know with with clothing. So like going to the thrift shop and like shopping on a budget, making things DIY, like that kind of stuff. And I, I think it really resonated. Um, it uh, it created a space for um, people to feel like they could relate to the content um, as well. And so kind of rode that into what like later became Instagram um, and influencer marketing. And um, back in the day when Instagram used to like, rewarding uh you posting content and showing um you know the algorithm new users and that kind of stuff and so um ended up scaling our audience at that and what sort of became like a college hobby turned into um, a small business and was able to consult with brands on their go-to-market strategy and um, how to release new products and helping build brands um, themselves and so um Ran with that for a while, kind of got burnt out from just like the content creation influencer side, like constantly posting and creating things for brands. We Beg- got, uh, began to get a little bit tiring. And so, um, kind of shifted gears and wanted to get into like the e-commerce side of startups. And so, um, have kind of spent the last three or four years working more or less on the tech side of, um, e-com. So worked at small startups, worked at larger ones like Gapo uh, have had the opportunity to um, go freelance and consult with brands um, and, and brand founders directly on, on their own you know, brand direction and partnerships and you know, go-to-market strategy and that kind of thing. Um, and so that's kind of, yeah, that's the day-to-day now. I work at a company called Swag Up now. Um, I'm the director of merchandising there. And at night, I'm, uh, I'm burning away at a side project I started called Spreza, which is um, sort of like the blog that I had back in early 20-teens, but for like Substack era. And so it's sort of email first, newsletter focused. And yeah, it's a, it's a weekly newsletter that I started um, to write about men's style and kind of how I see it. And, um, you know, I would say like the main themes of Spreza really covers like the genrelessness of like clothing and how, you know, things used to be very like specific to genres. Like there was the American sportswear era. And then there was the denim and Americana era. And then there was the streetwear era. And I think now what we're seeing culturally, which is really fascinating to me is like the, the marriage of all of these different genres into one and how self-expression sort of like blurred the lines now. Um, and so I, I write a lot about that. Um, but in terms of like the topics, it's really kind of a mix of curational stuff. So I create shopping guides for people. I interview brands and designers, um, I talk about style movements and shifts and things that I'm seeing. Talk about retail, all that kind of stuff. So that's that's my story.
0: That's sweet. Yeah, I'd love to get your perspective because you've kind of been you've had a pulse on this industry for a while now, right? Like going all the way back to like um real high-end luxury retail all the way through the kind of e-commerce D 2 C revolution that we're seeing in fashion apparel. So, like what have been the major shifts, right? Uh call it over the last couple years as fashion moved into e-commerce what were some of like the big shifts that you started to see and how that kind of and like how the consumers sort of played into that as well as like the brands like how how they were like launching and staying relevant yeah i mean the one of the things that's stood out to me over the last like decade is just like how much more
1: clever consumers have become um not only with their shopping habits but but their preferences and the things that they want they look for and i remember like you know barney's in like 2013 when i was there like seeing just the amount of like over and over inventory that they kept when they were like bleeding cash and they knew they were like sinking and still they were just like not being fiscally smart about how they were you know investing in their own stores and retail spaces and you know it, it, they i think they sort of like trust on the laurels of they rest on the laurels of their own like brand and legacy of like Barney's is too big to fail. Um, and like being at the very end of like that whole saga and like also being on the buying side, where it's like it, it, I think that was like one of the most interesting experiences that I had where it was like a mix of the e-com stuff, but also like it it, it did play into retail. And like honestly, a lot of people who who talk about like retail and say like retail is dead, is like it, I was chatting with a friend about this the other day. It's just like it's such a weird. Um, and I think it's like a dumb thing to say because it's like re- good retail always shines through, right? And um, I think when I when I look at a place like Barney's, um, their retail was just boring and it was bloated and it was like sterile. And so like that kind of stuff, I think, um, was interesting to watch. I think the other thing that was, you know, um, you know, fascinating to watch is just like the shift between like brands selling in store only versus like having to learn a new language with regards to like selling on social selling on website. Like this is all stuff that we've lived through. We understand, but like being part of that, like in the early 20 teens and and literally like having conversations with clothing brands at trade shows in Las Vegas and them being like, what's Instagram? Like, I don't know how to onboard, you know, onto a tool like that. I just, I just basically have my accounts uh, with different retail stores around the U S and that's like all I sell to and, you know, helping them kind of, on-ramp into those different ways um was another thing but yeah i would say like the big theme for me is just like consumers feel like more clever they're they're not easily fooled they know what they're looking for and um you know what i think is most important kind of down the line is like for brands to be able to kind of tailor their products to um honestly a more niche kind of consumer um instead of feeling like you have to you know draw from like the Warby or the Harry's or the away travel playbook of being like, we just target millennials in the U S because that's a big market and we need, you know, VCs to give us money. I think brands on the flip side are getting smarter about being like, Oh, but what about like, you know, Blaine who's, you know, in his late twenties, who, I don't know if you're in your late twenties, likes basketball and is into D to C marketing and lives in Chicago or whatever. Like that's a very kind of niche profile of a consumer. And maybe there's 10,000 of you, right? Um, and if your product or your AOV is like at that specific level, like you don't need to have millions of customers, like you can, can build a sustainable and happy and healthy business. And so, um, that's another thing that I've been kind of like seeing over, over time that I've been fascinated with.
0: I think that's a really cool trend. So you're basically saying that like brands can kind of create this like kind of ideal customer profile that might be like super niche or might sound super specific. But at the end of the day, there are a lot of those people. And because it's fashion, it's expression by tapping into that group of people who like really resonate with the product, they're able to get a foothold and then start to like grow out product lines and other um, types of uh, revenue and, and launch new new SKUs and stuff like that. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, 100%. And,
1: you know, it's not to say that you can't like expand into different categories eventually or, you know, if brands are like doing well financially and you end up like, acquiring other brands that could maybe fit underneath the bigger category. But I just, yeah, I think like the way that we're headed with, with brand stuff in general is that like the internet feels so noisy and there's so much shit out there that like um, it's best for brands to kind of go micro first um, rather than to um, take the opposite approach of being like, Oh, we're going to like go for this mass market consumer because we think it's a big opportunity. And like, there'll always be those brands, you know, that exist too. But I see the world as more of like, there's lots of micro brands, um, as opposed to um, fewer brands, but like going after bigger markets.
0: Yeah, and, and that's really interesting because that's something you see a lot of times in go-to-market in SaaS or in any in different types of businesses where you're like, okay, let's start niche um solve a really particular customer pain point and then be able to like expand all those use cases. Mm -hmm. And it's just interesting to like think of it the same way in a consumer business where you're selling apparel and you're you're crafting this like really specific ICP and then being able to like leverage that community and that really specific use case to grow and maybe start uh your business and grow a profitable business out that way. The next question that I had is going back to Barney's just so you could like maybe set the stage a little bit for our listeners like what ended up happening i remember like they were you know such a massive luxury retailer i know you guys had like flagship stores all the major cities i would go in and that's where like you know i'd i'd shop and get sunglasses shoes like all that sort of stuff but like and it seemed i think um like they folded maybe at the big like e-commerce was a thing. Like I, I ordered stuff online from Barney's. So like, what kind of happened that led to their sort of downfall? And what was your role there when you were working with them? Yeah. So
1: my role was um, on the buying side. Um, it's just like a pencil pushing purchase order buyer, right? And so, spent a short amount of time doing that. But uh, yeah, in the later stages, they just uh, they overbought on inventory. They um, obviously weren't like financially responsible to the point where they had to go bankrupt. And, uh, there were a few sort of offers on the table, um, which this is funny now, cause there's sort of a, uh, there's a sort of reviving of, of Barney's happening now, but yeah, they went bankrupt. There was a few people in the fashion industry. Um, one of the investors from Kith. Uh, wanted to go in and and basically be like, hey, like here's here's this investment on the table. Let's like let's save Barney's. Let's keep them around. And uh, just they couldn't get the deal done. And so yeah, Barney's basically got liquidated. <laughs> All their products just went on sale, um, which was a great time for probably a lot of consumers who wanted to cash in on discounted luxury goods. But they they are now like I think revived as a skincare brand. This just launched like a couple, I want to say a couple of months ago, but yeah, they they are now, I guess, like in the skincare side of things. But yeah, I mean, the the other thing too that like was with Barney's, um, I don't know if you're if you were familiar with a brand that also uh, folded last year, I want to say, um, called Entire World, run by this guy named Scott Sternberg. But Entire World was basically like the it brand during early COVID. New York Times did a piece on them about... You know, how sweats are kind of the new uniform for work because everyone's working remotely and you want comfortable premium sweats and so, you know, this this entire world brand, before Scott was working on that, he was working on Band of Outsiders, um, which was basically like the it prep wear brand in like the late um the late early two thousands, going into like early twenty teens. Like he had like Anna Wintour coming to his parties and Kanye and like all like everybody was like loving you know, his stuff, he was based out in LA. And so, um, and so he had, you know, people like Barney's basically buying inventory from him and like, they weren't selling the stuff. And so they are then like putting it on discount and like not paying, you know, terms to these brands. And so those brands started to fold too. Right. And this was, again, as the shift of like Shopify started expanding and growing, e-commerce started to become more of a thing, you know, and brands were relying less on like retail as a way of selling. Um, you know that i'd sort of tie, i'd say that to like tie back into barney's but like that's just that's kind of the, the stuff that was happening was like if you could if you like bought too much and couldn't afford it then you were discounting things and then it was creating you know more issues for the brands themselves too not just the retailer so it was, it was yeah nice. that
0: that's super interesting because they're like barney's is such a you know they were probably buying so much inventory off these like smaller brands and then when all that stuff like dried up it must have totally like messed up those businesses as well Um, And then the the other thing is that, you know, for for the, the other thing that was really, really interesting with something like Barney's and like that whole era is the fact that there's all these brands that. And I think you had just mentioned this earlier in our conversation was about how brands like now are like looking into retail and maybe in the beginning they would come to you at like a conference and be like, oh, like what's Instagram? Like what's that? But like they had retail sort of figured out and they knew how to do that. And I think now you're seeing like all these brands today who maybe like grew up on the Internet, like launched a Shopify store, figured out how to sell like D to C and a couple of product lines, but like now we're trying to like get into retail. So now you're seeing like mm-hmm. brands that are able to like leverage internet, start up, get like early traction. Then they're like, okay, now like wholesale or uh, or retail is like a totally new game to us, right? So is that is that something you you're, you've been seeing as well?
1: Yeah, I do I do see that a little bit, um, and I, I've also seen like many businesses started out of basically offering retail consulting to these D2C businesses, you know, so if you're cash flow positive or if you have good investment and you know, the runway to like basically have built your business online, but then you want to expand to a few like key select markets. Um, you start to see these like, you start to see these like D2Cification of neighborhoods like happening across the U S like obviously the Abbott Kinney neighborhood is popping. Um, I lived in Austin for a year, um, a few years back and like, South Congress was the street, like it is now still the street where like you have your Tacovas and Reformation and, you know, Warby and there's even like an actual retail, like D2C retail shop called Neighborhood Goods, which is just only carries D2C brands. Um, where I live in Nashville, we have, you know, this street called 12 South, which is a street and a neighborhood, but like it carries all your classic brands like Madewell and Marine Lair and Buck Mason and like all this stuff. And so I think, you know, that's been interesting, too, that there's almost like a a way that brands classify themselves with each other on, in retail, too. Like, you don't just go to a city and be like, we're going to expand into Atlanta. Like, you pick these very specific neighborhoods that, um, you know, are in tune with the type of consumer that you think will be, like, going to those places. And then you you sort of expand that way. So, like, one joke that people have had about um buck mason is that they always follow le Labo around and le Labo always follows buck mason around because when you're in you know a buck mason shop in any city like you almost always see the le Labo together and and i think the founders are actually friends but like it's sort of their way of like you know building and growing together which i think kind of plays more into like an interesting consumer point of like you know this is how brands kind of exist in the new world is that they they sort of want to they sort of want to like pair their consumers together into like a more full shopping experience, you know? So that's like, you know, there's like the good corner of coffee shop and then you pop kind of your way down a street to like shop sort of similar brands that have similar ICPs. And so that's, that I think has been another interesting thing for brands that kind of started online that, you know, are now shifting to, to brick and mortar.
0: Yeah. And I guess that's like almost just a small scale example of like, if you walk through a major mall, you'll see like all these like high end, luxury stores like i i uh you know i was in school and i lived in boston for a while and there was like the the big mall downtown and there was a big barney's in there but um you know next it was like when you get into the luxury section of the mall like all those different storefronts are like totally different than the other side of the mall which is like maybe like j crew club monaco and like some other different style brands so it's interesting to see the way like this is kind of unfolding in you know more of the D to C space, where rather than like looking for the traditional like upscale mall space and like that sort of retail space, they're kind of looking into the neighborhoods. They're getting a little bit more local, and so long as other shops are doing it, like they they're able to like capture that like local grassroots sort of sort of feeling. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah. Um, my next question is uh, regarding that sort of stuff. Is if you're a brand like. And I don't know if this is like quite your expertise, but like, if you're a brand and you're starting to like get some volume, you're starting to get some sales, how are you thinking between like, oh, I want to open up one of these, uh, locations, like these neighborhood, like sort of stores, or I want to like focus my time on, uh, on, you know, just finding other retailers to carry my products. And I want to like scale Mm -hmm. up that way. Like, how do you, how do you kind of make that trade off or think about that as a brand when you're going to market? (sighs) I think
1: uh, I think it's a, a such a subjective like question because you know everyone's situation is, is so different like depending on whether you bootstrapped your business or like you have cash in the bank from an investor uh, or you have the right plugs but it, it all kind of depends. Uh, what I can say is like what I've seen work well is when brands sort of ease into um, retail, by way of like doing pop-ups. And and one example of this is, is um, a guy I recently interviewed uh, on the Spreza newsletter and his name is Mike. He runs his brand called Manreza. He has sort of built like, w- one of his like customers made the joke um, in like a customer review on his website that like Manreza is the love child of L.L. Um, Bean and Nike ACG. And it's like the marriage of these brands. It's like the sort of young, cool kids, like outdoor stuff, but for people who actually do outdoor shit. Um, but it's sort of got the new England heritage. Cause the brand is based in like, I think it's based in like New Hampshire, Vermont. And so it's sort of got this like, um, like homage and like legacy and like heritage for the outdoors of like new England. But it's, uh, it's sort of rooted in like a little bit more contemporary streetwear, independent clothing brands and like that kind of stuff. And um, like I've been following this guy for like, a year and he just the way that he engages with his customers, like he runs the Instagram account. He's super anti-TikTok, but his engagement levels are like through the roof. He he basically just, it's like a group chat. Like you're, you're watching him text you new stuff that he's updated. Hey, I'm working on this new thing. Like you'll do, you know, AMAs and get hundreds of questions. And like these people, like, these people go crazy for his brand. Um, it's sort of like streetwear levels of stuff, even though he would say like, I'm not a streetwear brand. And so I've seen this guy grow this community and you know, following just by like being authentically him over the last year. And he just recently did a pop-up. I think it might be still open. It's down on Elizabeth Street, which if you're familiar with Elizabeth Street in Soho or Nolita, it's, it's basically become like the street for like independent menswear brands. You've got stuff like Corridor and 18 East and this brand called 316 and it's near ALD you know, over on Mulberry Street. And so you've got like this whole sort of amalgamation of brands who again, are probably similar consumers of all these other shops, right? And so but they love this guy's brand. And so he just did a pop up. And he's only doing it for a couple weeks to a month. But like, you know, he sort of tied it into releasing his fall collection. So fall winter, obviously, is huge for apparel, but he sort of strategically did it around that timeline. And he'll host, you know, mixers and events, he'll bring you know, different creators or influencers who also love and support the brand to sort of post up as a way of like, get, you know, getting people in the door. And so, um, like that's one specific example, but I, I just personally loved kind of watching how that evolves. Um, and I think a lot of other brands could probably like do the same thing for, you know, their own products.
0: Yeah. And that's, that's another thing. It's like the idea of authenticity for creators. So you're basically saying he's like really opening up his like creative process to his like following and being like very real about like the whole like building the collection and almost like, like with the community. Right. Um, and, and, and like, I'll say not every brand is kind of built for that. Right. Like some brands
1: just, you know, get their product outsourced and made somewhere else. And like, that's totally cool too. Like, um, you know, it doesn't, that doesn't necessarily apply to everybody, but because he's so closely tied to the brand itself, like it happens to work for him. And I think that's being able to ease into it allows you to get that customer feedback. Like you can get the data you need and be like, all right, cool. This works. Now let's go a little bit bigger next summer, or let's, you know, partner with this person to make a capsule collection next time or whatever it is.
0: Yeah, no, I I think that's really cool to see it work. And it just comes down to like authenticity and how you would do it. Right. Like, like you're saying, if it's like, a big brand, they're not gonna start, you know, peeling back all the layers and doing that. They're gonna do their high production stuff, and that's gonna work for them. Whereas, if you're a creator and this is like genuinely what you would be doing, almost like more like an artist, then it totally makes sense. um Moving forward, one one thing you just mentioned was like partnerships and building co- uh, collections. And one thing that we're obviously seeing a lot more with creators entering the landscape is you see creators starting their own brands, you see creators collaborating with other brands and like launching collections within brands. So like, how are you sort of seeing this, uh, the, this sort of evolve, but between like apparel, fashion creators, is it something different than has, than that's happened before? Or is this just like the, the next iteration of how brands and creators collaborate?
1: Um, can you just clarify one thing you're, you're saying like you've seen brands and creators, collaborate a lot more recently and and you're saying like is this the new yeah
0: i i just i just think the the landscape of it is is like evolving a little bit right so now it's obviously easier than ever for creators if they want to launch their own brand where they like actually own the brand and they're like launching that they can do that or if it's a creator they've built an audience then an existing brand is like oh we want to do a special collaboration with the creator where that creator gets their own you know capsule collection or whatever you want to call it so I just wanted to see what what you're seeing and what your pulse on all of this sort of thing is cuz I've at the same time I've also seen some like pushback from creators being like oh not every creator needs their own like beauty beauty product line or like streetwear line or whatever it is. So just what what are you kind of seeing from from your vantage point?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the the collab and partnership side is is an interesting thing to to cover. I guess before I jump into you know, that side of it, I think like the the idea of a collab or a partnership to me, um, really falls into like four different categories. Right. So the first category is, you know, does it feel authentic? Right. Is, is there something that feels genuine about both brands and parties to want to get you involved? Right. Um, I think the other principle to think about is is like the why, like what, what's actually happening in the collab? Why now? Why is it specific to this campaign? Um, and if you can't answer that, I think you probably shouldn't do a collab with whoever it is that you're, you know, wanting to, to partner with, right? Um, I think the other thing that is interesting to me about great collabs and, and partnerships in general, whether it's with a creator or it's brand to brand is just the idea of like unexpectedness. Um, and so creating a sense of like surprise, bringing two different worlds together um, is, is another fascinating thing. And then I think maybe like the last thing is, is this is probably contradictory to unexpectedness, but like novelty. Um, so what you create, you know, should probably just feel authentic. It should feel unique. Um, it should be something that's new um, and, and preferably not been done before. Although, you know, there are things that can be recycled or repurposed, but um, those are kind of four different things you know on the collab and partnership side that i'm attracted to that i see you know most brands do well but um yeah i'll stop there i don't know if you have anything you wanted to add on before i could jump ahead
0: no no i think that's 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 pretty good perspective in terms of like what makes a, a collaboration successful and then maybe on the the flip side um you know are there any collaborations that you've seen flop are there any examples where like brands or creators like totally Missed the boat and like messed up on on a, a product drop or something like that. I'll,
1: I mean, I'll, I'll kind of focus more on the, probably on the more positive ones. But one that I really liked earlier this summer was when Asics partnered with this. This sounds weird, but they're called a they're called Flock Together. They're literally a bird watching collective, and they're based in London and started by two um by two black guys based in London who. Uh, wanted to create a space for people of color who feel like comfortable being outdoors. And so this started during the pandemic. They literally just said like, Hey, like once a month, we're going to meet at, you know, X location, everybody take the train out to the spot and we're going to go birdwatching in nature together. And uh, you know, they basically started building this like really cool community of birdwatchers, people who like had never been into it, but then all of a sudden started getting interested in, in birdwatching. And uh, you know, there was like a sense of like swag and style to it too, because everybody who was like going on on these, you know, trips actually was like dressed really well too. Um, which was fascinating that like, you know, there's sort of the form and the function of it, right? There's like you're outdoors, you're in nature, you're hiking, you're going to watch these things. But then there's also like, I want to look good while I'm doing it too. And so they started building this reputation as like, Oh, like a super stylish, um, you know, collective or community. And, um, Started getting wind from, you know, places like GQ and Esquire and High Snobiety and people doing articles about them. And, like, their community is, like, blown up to the point where, like, they got a book deal. They're working on a book right now to write about it. And then Asics hit them up and we're like, hey, we want to design a sneaker with you. Like, an outdoor-focused, like, hiking yep. shoe that your people can go on, like, you know, birdwatching, um, you know, hiking, you know, whatever with and uh and then they did this whole commercial with it to launch it it was like it was honestly really sick and I was like oh yeah that's like such great alignment like it's really cool that a shoe company comes out and it's like hey like we see there's alignment with what you're doing we want to kind of be a little more in this space um and obviously like people need shoes to go hiking and so there I don't know there was just this strong like brand connection that I saw um that like I personally just, I loved stuff like that. And so that was, that was a cool example. I mean, another example that I thought was interesting, I wouldn't say it was like bad or flopped. Um, I thought it actually probably did quite well was like the Emma Chamberlain Blank Street um, coffee collab, right? Emma, Emma Chamberlain obviously launched her, you know, her her uh, coffee company <laughs> recently. And then Blank Street, which I've been fascinated with as just this sort of like ubiquitous, like, mm, quietly like invisible, but just like reliable coffee shop. That's like growing like like crazy all around the city. And I I think they've obviously expanded to other cities, but like, you know, for them to partner with Emma Chamberlain on, on a collaboration with different, um, you know, types of coffee offerings. Like I didn't, I I obviously didn't think it was bad, but it was just like, Oh, this is like weird. I wouldn't have expected these two people to partner, but it also like kind of weirdly worked too, because of sort of like the no nameness of like blank street. Um, like I, I wouldn't see Emily Chamberlain do that with like Blue Bottle Coffee or Gregory's Coffee. Like they couldn't pull that off the same way that Blank Street did. And I thought that was like an interesting way to to, to partner up um, on the brand side. So yeah,
0: yeah. I think the thing that like really jumps out, especially on the ASICs and the birdwatching one. I hadn't heard of that one, but I think that's really cool. I think it's the idea of, because you hear so much about community, right? And it's like, oh, everyone needs to like build their own community, which is obviously like an important yeah. part to growing a brand, but also like being able to leverage and tap into existing like fast growing communities. So like if you have alignment and you are a brand and maybe you're not like, You know it probably wouldn't make sense for asics to like build their own bird watching community because like that that would be like crazy right but being able to like quickly identify communities that have alignment with you that maybe your your brand values align with that there could be a cool collaboration opportunity and tapping into that i think that's really cool because then you're obviously getting all these people who are bought in together around it you're doing something for them that probably hasn't that no one else is really doing at this sort of stage and this sort of scale. So, and then, you know, on the back end, obviously I'm sure they got a whole bunch of great press and, um, a bunch of great impressions and, and everything. So it just sounds like a pretty cool opportunity that I haven't seen a whole ton of that, um, where, where brands can really start developing products alongside all these communities. Cause on the internet, I mean, discords, there's like crazy amounts of whether it's communities on Reddit, on Discord, on all these different platforms, like they're massive, massive communities who really care about um, specific topics. Yeah,
1: 100%. Um, I mean, the, the other stuff that I think has done really well is like Andrea Hernandez with Snackshot and like the community that she's built is honestly like one of the most incredible case studies and how to build something thoughtfully and organically, but also be able to like um, sort of optimize for like the virality that comes with like creating consistent and good content. And yeah, like Andrea's is le- legitimately building an empire like on the, on the food and Bev side with CPG products with what she's done. She recently went to the FWB Fest, which if you're familiar with FWB, the friends with benefits Dow, that is probably like one of the only DAOs that exists in the world. <laughs> <laughs> but like um, they've also like capitalized on it really well um, with their own brand and and um, they like flew Andrea out to like curate like a cafe basically at their festival where she curated all the food and drink, like all the snacks, like, you know, it was sort of like bodega style and it was really, really honestly a dope um, experience, but like that kind of stuff, you know, that, that, that she's been able to build and, and the opportunities that have come her way by creating like consistent, good content as a creator it has like opened up crazy doors, you know, with other brands too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and that's definitely something that's in your wheelhouse, right? Like as you're a creator and as you're building um, out Spreza and the newsletter. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about like, you know, what, what's growing it been like, I know you alluded to saying like, you'd been doing this before and being able to like build out the newsletter. It was just a new medium, but like, as you grow your own readership and as you're creating content, like what's your kind of. What's your strategy and how did you start it and how'd you build it?
1: Yeah. Great question. I started building Spreza in the summer of 2020 when I left the job. Um, and was just kind of feeling burnt out from life and then wanted to create a space where I could talk about stuff that I was interested in. And I used to be big on the Twitter threads um, before the like the thread boy stuff started um, becoming a thing that you didn't want to be known for, but I uh, had a friend, you know, people that would, would regularly ask me, like, "Hey, like, when are you gonna just launch a newsletter? Like, take all the threads that you're posting and just start building. You might as well like start, you know, benefit from like building an email list out of this stuff." And, um, you know, I thought that was kind of lame. I was like, a Substack, that's stupid. Like, why would I create a newsletter? And uh, yeah, it, it ended up working, um, you know, out for me to just launch it on Substack for free. And I think. I didn't have crazy ambitions for it at first. I just wanted it to be a space where I was like sharing observations and things that I saw and um, it quickly, I think, you know, partially through my Twitter following and that was growing at the time. And it just started to become this thing where like when I would share content, it resonated with people and the email list started growing. And, um, you know, the other funny thing, too, I, th- I think looking back on early like Spreza days is that like, you know, the the sort of big examples at the time were like, you know, Packy's not boring newsletter, which is like a business tech kind of infused newsletter where he does these big think pieces and deep dives. And, you know, he was big in Twitter culture in the similar circles that I was, and his started blowing up like crazy. And, um, you know, obviously morning brews, um, approach and how they were able to scale their email list through newsletters. And so I was kind of looking at these examples being like, Oh, well, like I just, I can do that with Spreza. Like I can apply, with you know, the same model and the same like approach, um, you know, with my own, you know, content and email list and it it ended up not really working out that way. Um, Like I launched a referral program and like it didn't really work. And I, you know, tried to write specific type of content that, you know, I thought would play well from a consumer perspective and it just, it just didn't really hit home. And um, I think what that taught me was that like everybody has their own path when it comes to content creation Um, and the same can apply for brands, right? Like everyone has to take their own journey and you can't um, sort of, hack or, or shortcut your way to, you know, getting to a comfortable place or getting to success or whatever that looks like for you. And so I've, you know, over the last year, really tried to lean into my own voice and um, where I think I can add value in the space and being able to, you know, differentiate that from, you know, what others offer. And, you know, there's a couple things that I think I offer from a newsletter and content creation perspective. And I think one is curation. So being able to take lots of shit on the internet and then condense it into one email and help you sort of decipher what you know is interesting to you so I, I create these seasonal you know shopping guides every fall and I say here's here's like the Spreza guide to outerwear here's what I would buy you know for uh, jackets here's what I would buy for beanies here's what I would buy for you know pants or shoes and like you know just optimize more for like better options but fewer as opposed to like more but like good deals or steals like sometimes I'll, I'll you know shout out discounts and things like that but I try to really make it about like quality um, the second is honestly like education. So like helping people, I think like one reason that I started Sprezza was to like create a space where people could learn about stuff culturally, you know, um, that they might have not been taught growing up. And like, for me, I, I didn't really have a whole lot of access to culture growing up. And so, you know, I'm always fascinated with like, yeah, like what's the history of this brand or like, how did this product become popular? And so I'll, you know, I'll do these deep dives on like, here's how Carhartt became, a streetwear brand here's the whole history and like i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you about it and i'm gonna do it in an engaging way and so creating education on that front is helpful and then the last would just be like discovery um so i do these um shopping guides i'm about to release the one for paris about to release one for new york city i got someone working on one for los angeles but like um the idea is that like you know i can create a shopping guide that helps you discover new things or you know each week i'll, I'll give you kind of a roundup of products that i like Um, and so I think those are kind of the three things that I've tried to lean into is like curation, education, and discovery, and, um, really try to rely on that stuff to help people, you know, find what they're looking for and and hopefully people like the content. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like you've been able to kind of take that first concept we talked about, about like really being able to like niche down and rather like, rather than creating for like everyone in the world, you're like, no, no, no. Like I'm going to create things that I authentically think that these are the best type of things to buy this season or these this is the ty- these are the places that I would shop in these locations or this is how I'm going to educate you and how I think about fashion so being able to like have your own voice in there rather than just saying like, "Oh, here, this is generic men's fashion," and you know, going from that perspective, then there's no, there's no real like north star to it. So I think that's a really cool way to approach it, and clearly, it's um, you know, shown in the success and the growth of the, your community and your newsletter, um, and you know, your your kind of voice in the space. So anyway, as we wrap up here. Um, where can our listeners find you? Where can they connect with you? Um, and we know you got the newsletter, so why don't you shout out your newsletter, your Twitter, um, anywhere where listeners can connect?
1: Yeah, uh, you can find me on my sub stack uh, at Spreza, S-P-R-E-Z-Z-A dot X-Y-Z. So spreza.xyz. dot X-Y-Z. And then I'm pretty active on Twitter. Uh, my handle is just at Clayton Chambers, except... Chambers is spelled with no e, so C H A M B R S. That's pretty much where I'm active. I post my socials on um, the newsletter too, if you want to go there. But those are kind of the two main areas. The last thing I'll say too, as we kind of wrap up, just because I was sort of an unfinished thought with regards mm-hmm. to like creators and brands, is like I think the thing that I'm noticing um, on the you know on the side of like content these days is that instead of brands. You know, focusing primarily on like building a product first and then trying to find a consumer for it. I'm now noticing the opposite of like brands build communities. Brands are communities first. Um, You know, they're a group chat, they're uh, an Instagram account that, you know, curates things on the feed that then evolves into brands based on what the community says they want or what they like. Um, And I think that's why, you know, Discord has resonated so strongly with a lot of, you know, culture. And I think Geneva is sort of the next app in my mind that really works too is that it's a space for creators and communities to build and grow and evolve and you sort of build products around that. And so, you know, that's kind of what I'm hoping to build with Spreza is like the community aspect to it. Um, because it's like, oh cool, if you already know what your people like because there's an existing community, then it shouldn't be hard to like build stuff that, you know, caters to them and the things that they like, um, as opposed to like sinking a bunch of money into a brand or a product and then trying to figure out like where's the consumer for this, right? Um, so it's a little bit of a reverse approach that I'm, you know, seeing. And I think it's, I think it's kind of the next wave of how we do, you know, consumption.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, it's something that we had talked about before and I think we're really excited to keep our pulse on like what community led commerce really means, like where it goes. I think you have a great entry point in being able to start a community, right? And I think other brands that can tap into that, um, you know, whether it's just at the, scale of like oh here's the type of content that i'm creating and and the community can kind of get involved with our creative process or all the way to where you're at where you've kind of created this forum almost for um you know community members like if you're running a geneva like you could set up a different channels where they can talk about different types of style, different types of shopping experiences and all this sort of stuff. And, and that can sort of feed itself. And then you can spin a brand out, um, out of that, like down yeah. the line. Right. So, um, I think you guys are positioned really in a cool way and hopefully for the brands that are listening, they're just kind of thinking on all the different ways that all these different frameworks that were we've chatted through can be applied in their own authentic way. Right. Like don't just create one for the sake don't... of creating it. You got to think about like, okay, now that I have this information, like how does this actually apply in an authentic way? So anyway, wanted to thank you for, for joining us yeah. on the pod and look forward to seeing Spreza and the community continue to grow. Of course. Thanks so much, Blaine. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in and we hope you enjoyed this episode of DTC pod. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love your support. A rating and a review would go a long way as we continue to host the best builders in DTC and beyond follow and subscribe to the show and make sure to check out our show notes where you can find our socials and weekly newsletter. Visit us on dtcpod.com to join our founder community and access resources from every episode. We'll see you on the next pod.